0: Good morning, everybody. Today we will be learning Tetz Zayin in Maseches Shkalim, Jewish history. Beautiful. You look at the timeline. This year's Haggadah, we had a timeline of Jewish history. Maybe I'll post it to the uh, chat. And it's amazing when you look, uh, you could just see how many people were in Kalal Israel and where they were during our history, and it tells such a story. Except for this part of history, which we discussed today, it would seem pristine, but there were so many issues with the different kings and the kingdoms in the north and the south, all the stuff that David Kas Shulita discusses. Um, very, very intricate. It would seem simple, I would say, simply because you see a line where all the Jews were together in Mitzrayim, and then all the Jews at Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which we just celebrated and told the Sepur of, and they end up in Israel, and they're in Eretz Israel all together, Every Jew only lived in Israel during the time of the Bayez Rishon. And then today we'll talk about some of the period of time towards the very end of that Bayez, before the Chorban Bayez Rishon. But all the Jews at that time, every single one of them was living in Israel. But that was not an indication that it was necessarily uh, issue-free, as we will discuss. One of the discussions that we're going to have, we're going to start. We talked about the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, the question we left off with, I'll say one question from yesterday and we'll move on. We have an agenda today. Uh, Just the one question, we mentioned the Mikhtav Meleya. So yesterday, after... uh, after a share, we were able to uh, look at it in Shul, they have a copy here, and it discusses the question of Nachem Yish Gamzu. Nachem Yish Gamzu said to his, Rabbi, his Talmud, Rabbi Akiva, he said, don't you want these surim? I feel bad for you that you don't have the Isurim that I had. He felt so terrible for somebody who he had not uh, given heed to on the road, and so he saw that person passed away, and his arms were chopped off, and his legs were broken, and his eyes, they um, became blind. Why would he wish those Isurim upon his Talmud Rabbi Akiva? And he makes it sound like, oh, these Yisurin are incredible. You should only wish to have such Yisurin. It sounds like he's a glutton for punishment. Is that really our hashkafa? So I can't claim to have fully understood what Rav Bessler said, but at the core of it, uh, you could just say that it is consistent with, <laughs> with <laughs> Don't worry, Barry, I was holding your place. I'm talking still but yesterday, Haq. You uh, look great. I hope you had a great yuntiv. Um, Nachum Mishkamzu yesterday seemed like he was a glutton for punishment. So Rav Dessler says it's not so much that he was praying to have these isurim, although it seems like that. From the Gemara, he says he wasn't really praying to have the isurim. He just felt bad when he got the isurim. It was consistent with his character as Nachum Mishkamzu. Once you get isurim, so that your ha- has to be that that's from Hashem. In other words, isurim are hashkafically says uh, Rav Dessler a necessity uh, from Hashem. He has to give it to you, so to speak. In other words, when you get it, you realize that that can only come from Hashem. Is a bad way of putting it and once you know that it can only come from Hashem the Hashem has to be that it's there for a reason and then you have to search out the reason and do the truth etc but because you know that it, it, it by definition can only come from Hashem so it is for that reason that you embrace it and try to get what you're supposed to get out of those you certain, be it a kapara or a lesson, or motivate you to do something else, uh, a Chuva, etc. Okay, so that, that's just uh, it, it's understood. Uh, Rav Dessler speaks it out. It's in a letter in the back. What's what's fun if you read that letter from Rav Dessler? It's at page 328 in volume three. Is that he, he goes nuts? He's like he, he writes in the letter, I was learning and I got the shkalem das tesvav and my whole world exploded. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, uh, you get the sense that you know he had not seen that kamara and then we saw the kamara. It really was very impactful to him. Okay, Barry, you're here, so let's do this. we are set lines up on the bottom on tesvav and Base and we have an agenda. The agenda is we're looking for the lost ark. We had. Uh, we went, went into Gullus. Did they take the ark with them or did they not? So presumably they did not. But the more fundamental question, how many Aronos were there? How many Aronos were there? Why should there be confusion? So first of all, Bitzalel was told to build an Aron. Moshe was told to build an Aron and betzalel was told to build an Aron. So does that mean that they built the Aron twice? Until betzalel built the Mishkan, right, there was the, the Torah had already been given. So the, the Torah was kept in the oil That's one source of confusion. It could be that when Moshe Rabanin was told... That was that he didn't fashion it himself, but he waited he, to instruct that to Btzalil to do. So that's how, so that's one source of confusion. Where are the two Aronos? The other source of confusion is that um, we have multiple Sifrei Torah, right? We have the first Luchos, which we're going to be celebrating soon in Shavuos, and, and those were broken. And then we have the second set of Luchos, which were attacked. And then we also have a Torah scroll that Moshe wrote. Right. So we have uh, three different things. So were those all kept in one Aron or were those kept in separate Aronos? Uh, that's another source of confusion. We're going to talk about that. So our agenda today is to first of all discuss not based on those because they're ambiguous, but based on Tanakh, right, different episodes, does it seem like there was one Aron or not? um and one of the ways to tell is if there is they used to sometimes bring the arun with them to to battle and the question is was an arun that sat in the base of mikdash we're going to talk about looking from the zman bais rishon where there's in the zman Bait rishon we know that the iron uh was kept in the base of mikdash was it taken out for the battle or did they right or did they take um or did they uh have one that went out in battle and the other one stayed back at home um we also know very famously in early Nevi'im that the arun was taken right by the Fleish team and when the Aaron was taken, and we're going to mention Beit Shemesh, right? Where, where I lived for 16 years over here. So, uh, so the, these are, right? That's a famous episode. So that would imply maybe there's one aron. Let's dig in without further ado into this Tukim. Through this Tukim, we're going to try to figure out our agenda. Whether there was one or two aronos. We'll see. That was a Machlokes. And then we're gonna see, okay, let's say there was one aron. How did the luchos, shiver, luchos, and klaf fit into the aron? And then based on that, we're gonna talk about the construction of the aron. Um and that's that'll hopefully take us to the Mishnah on Simon Beis, if I haven't talked too much already. So without further ado, let's see if we get some history here. Um we know we David Katz, cats, but this will hopefully be a uh inspire us to look further into this time period in Jewish history. So there's machlokis from ben Lachish, where we left off. He holds that there's two Aronos. And the Rabbanon held that there was one Aron. That's the basic machlokis. So seven lines up, the Gemara says, Kraya We have a passage to support the Rabanan's assertion that there's only one aron. How so? Because the Psalm says, uh, This is the Plishtim. This is when they had in the aforementioned battle, right? They're fighting the Jews, and they say, Who's going to save us from this or this God? So it sounds like, says the Gemara, that they were so struck because they, something which they had never seen in their lives, right, was actually, was, they, were, they were witnessing. What was that? They saw the soldiers had the Aron. That implies that that was only in their passage. As we know, the Plishtim were a big thorn in our side, and they fought us all the time. All of a sudden, the Aron comes out. That would seem to imply that the, that in all the other battles, the Aron didn't come out, so to speak. So that, in other words, what uh, the Rabbanan are saying is, there's only one Aron because uh, if there had been two Aronos, then the second Aron would have presumably accompanied the Jews in all of their battles. And since the Bleshtim only saw the, bat- the Aron for the first time here, it seems to imply that. They had not seen it before, and therefore it must be that it was taken out special only for this battle, and there's only one Aron. That is a source for the Rabbanon. Says the Gemara, cry Messiah, the Rabbanon, we have a source for Just so there two Aronos as follows. It says the Pasuk, the Hagisha aron ha'elokim." That, that Sha'ul is telling Achia, bring the Aaron, right, because it was there, but saw that day. Ah, says the Gemara, but wasn't the Aron in Telstone at that time? If you look at history, that's where the Aaron, uh, was. So says the Gemara, ma'avdun Le Rabbanon. What would so that seems to be right a real a real big source for that in other words right that that seems to be a knockout kasha we know from Navi that the Aron was in right that, that the that the Aaron was in Telstone. why is why is that a problem maybe he means um this, right and still he says that when he says Agish Aaron HaElokim right you have to read the rest of the pasuk that's the point he says bring the aron Elokim because Aaron Elokim was there in battle with them on that day that that's that's the issue okay so if the if it was with them on that day um, so then, obviously, right, it was out in battle with them. So if it was out in battle with them, and we also know historically that it was in Kiryasi Arim, which is today tailstone, roughly, so right between Beit Shemesh and Yerushalayim, close to Yerushalayim, so if that's where it was, it, presumably there were two Aronos. So the Gemara says, that's a knockout Kasha. How could the Rabbanon hold that there's two Aronos in, when, when you have this, this uh, issue, when you have this episode with Show? So says the Gemara, what does the Rabbanon do with this Pasuk that implies that there's two Aronos? So says the Gemara, lai that the Tzitz, uh, is one of the big day as we know, right? And we know that the Kohen Gadol used to have the Urim Batumim. Now, and it sits, and, and the very special garment that it sits because it had the Shem Hashem was considered chief among all of these, uh, all these big de kahuna. not unlike the way our mind and our head is the roche, so to speak, of our bodies, right? Is the most prominent part of our body. The tits was the most prominent, so to speak, of all the big de kahuna. And so, what was happening here, according to Rabbanan, was that Shaul was asking, don't not bring me the aron, but he was saying, or not the, the aron was with us that day, but some sort of a chest that contained the big de kahuna that had the tits and had the aron betumim. And so, he was referring to this this uh, this chest that had those those uh, vestments, as opposed to the aron which held the luchos. Um, that's what he was referring to when he when he said that it was with us that day and that's why and so that's what was with them in um, in the battle while the Arun at that time in history was in fact in Kiryasi Arim right it was, <laughs> this was not in the base of Mikdash at that point it was in Telstone at that point and, and we'll get into some of that history now but definitely uh, definitely Kedai to check out all the, all the all of Navi to see uh, how, how the Arun moved around okay so now, further proof for Rabbi Huda Ben Lakish, who held right uh, that there were two Aronos. So, crime here. He calls Rabbi Yehuda Ha'Aaron Basukos. Okay. So, what was going on here? This was a statement. Remember those tests? So, who said this? This was Uriah. In Uriah gets called back from battle um, by David Amalek, and he says how. And and, and you read the took him. It looks like Uriah was a big big tadic, and so Uriah. This is uh, quite a quite tragic uh, story over here where he loses his life. But before he loses his life, he's called back to battle from the chief, commander in chief. And he says, how can I go back for, from battle? How, after all, the Aron and Israel and Yehuda are yoshua Misukos, which the Pashat is, all the troops are, are, are in, in a temporary dwelling. And we are actually in battle. And I can't leave my men. I can't leave my men. Why would I go back? The, the uh, continuation of Pashat is, I'm going to go back. I'm going to be with my wife. right? And so right, um, David had wanted him to be with his wife. Um... But be that, you know, right, for, for the reason, because he knew with was Bacheva, because, uh, so, th- so that if there were any children with the union with Bacheva, so it would make, still add up because Uriah had been home. He said, how can I come home and be with my wife? After all, uh, I'm out here in the battlefield with my men. Anyway, in that context, he makes it sound like the Aron is out with them in the battlefield. Well, certainly that would support the idea that the Aron did go into the battlefield regularly, which support the fact that there were two Aronos. So as we arrive at the Zion, but Aleph, the, uh, the Gemara asserts, but wait a minute. Zion here is referring to Rushalayim. So we know historically that at that time, right, just before this, David had brought right, the Aron to Yerushalayim. This was a very famous episode where he brings the Aron back to Yerushalayim. So if in fact he brought the Aron to Yerushalayim, what did Uriah mean when he said that the Aron is with us in battle? Must mean that there were two Aronos, one in Yerushalayim and one out in the battle with them. So, so the Gemara asks, Ma'ab bin banner what are the banner going to do with this, uh, with this proof from the Pesukim? So says, the Gemar, Asrach hu'kikirui, sh'adayin lo'nivna beis Wow. That uh, Uriah, when he was saying that I'm at the coast with the Aron, he didn't mean out in the battlefield. He meant that, in fact, the base on Mikdash was not yet built. And therefore, where the Aron was, even though it was, in fact, in your Shalayim, right? Because you remember from Navi, David's coming back and it's a whole uh, celebration when he's dancing, right? Uh, when he brings the Aron back to your Shalayim. You also know that David didn't build a base of Mikdash. Shalom Amal built a base of Mikdash. So has excuse me, to be, that there was a period of time when the Aaron was, in fact, in Line but not yet housed in the beis hamikdash. Now, in order for this shot to work, you have to understand that Uriah was such a tzaddik that he was so sensitive to the fact that the Aaron did not yet have a beis hamikdash to house it that he felt like he could never be in full celebration and go back home and be with his wife so long as... Jewish history is in a state of flux, and the Aron is in a state of flux and not yet housed in its permanent dwelling in the base of Mikdash. So if only we had that kind of sensitivity to um, and wanted the base of Mikdash to be built as much as Uriah did at the time. Okay. Okay, so now the Bryce is going to say, uh, back to how did we get here? So we were talking about where the Aron, um, yesterday, right, where it was hidden, right? So the Aron eventually had to be hidden, as we know, because the Jews knew that they were going to go back in Galus. So now we're going to be spending some time talking about that period of history, which was within the last 35-ish years, uh, before the full Horban of the Beis Rishon, we knew that it had to be Nignaz. And, right, we talked about the Balatot, the mismatched floors, um, Perhaps in the area where the, where the wood was kept, uh, different, different uh, sheet as to where exactly it was nignaz. Our mission makes it sound like it was in the area, uh, the office where the wood was kept, and there was a loose b- floorboard, and underneath there, that's where the aron was nignaz. Why did it have to be nignaz? Because we didn't want to go and be captured, obviously, right? That was terrible when the aron was captured. So anyway, the aron was nignaz. Says the uh, Gemara, three lines down, mission, nignaz or aron, nignaz imo, a few other items as follows. the haman, a jar, of, a jar of man from the Midbar, this would be cool. To, 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 to get all these items. We really want, if we, once we find these items, we'll know Mashiach is very, very close, because I'd love to see these items. The, the a jug of Mun would be incredible to look at. Utslochis Sheminah Mishcha, a flask of the Sheminah Mishcha, right? The oil that they used to anoint. and Ushkedav, another very cool item. We remember at the rebellion of Korach, uh, where at the end, after all the pyrotechnics and the, and the, um, and the, sw- and the ground swallowing everyone up, we wanted to affirm. Right, the, the that the kahuna belonged to Aaron and to the Kohanim to the to the family of Aaron and Moshe, and the affirmation in the Torah was that of the staff of Aaron blossoming with almonds, also calendrical coincidences, right, because this is the time of the year that everything is blossoming. The Argaz and the box that the Plishtim sent as a guilt offering to Bnei Israel. What in the world was this? you have, it, it, there's no way to, to describe this better than the art school. I'm literally going to uh, read it, because this is unbelievable. Um, and this is, refers, harkens back to what we learned uh, just a little bit earlier yesterday, that Plishtim captured the Aaron, as we said, and they were plagued with hemorrhoids and other things, so their right, sorcerers told him, this is how you're going to uh, get rid of the plague, right, it's, it's almost like Makos Mitzrayim, but a little bit later in Jewish history. This is the Plishtim Amaka. so say so how are you going to do this? So the sorcerer said, send it back with a Korban Khatas, show that you feel bad, and so they made, the art says, they fashioned five golden images of hemorrhoids and five golden mice corresponding to the five F- police team governors they put it in a box near the aron and then they sent back the aron and they placed it how they sent it back they tied the wagon to two nursing cows whose calves were sent home and miraculously the cows led the wagon directly to the jewish town of Beit shemash this is all straight up in the psukin in shemuel Aleph. this is right in the beginning of the early Neviim, and so these golden objects were positioned next to the aron and so they were in fact concealed can you imagine i don't know what a hemorrhoid statue looks like but the fact of the matter is that the mice and hem, all these things that the police team sent back, that's how they got rid of the plague. Just incredible, you read Navi, it's like more graphic and wild than any movie made. It's um, it's, it's wild times. Anyway, so the question now is, all of these amazing items were hidden. So the question is, who hid all of this stuff? So the answer is, Yoshi-Yahu-Knazo. Another incredible Jewish history here. He was one of the last kings. He was from the Davidic dynasty. I can send you from Simon Wolf, I send it to Birnbaum, Esmar McComos. This becomes a great big question. The different kings, obviously the north and the south, from Yehuda, not from Yehuda. The whole question of whether to be a melech, you have to be from the divinic dynasty, is in fact a machlokas uh, in the Rishonim. It's 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 wild. The Rambam seems to say that as long as you're accepted and you if, and you fill certain criteria, you are you have all the dinim involved in melech. There are many dinim that have to do with the melech, and so the question is, are you like a melech derayi or are you a melech derabanan? If you're one of the kings, it's not so pasher. Um Now, Amon. And Menashe, Menashe was was not righteous at all. He was terrible. Uh, but Yoshio, historically um, was Menashe's grandson, and he tried to clean everything up. He tried to, to do tshuva. We're going to see some of the stories, right? He, as he stepped into the right the malucha, he, fa- he he stepped into malucha, just steeped. Like I said, all of lived in Israel. The base hamikdash harishon, the base rishon stood, but idolatry, right? Shvichos damim gilu all and and most notably avodah zara were very 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 prominent the jewish people were almost completely alienated from the torah it was this as he was um going into his kingdom as he was growing up as a king he tried to clean that up and he was and he was doing repairs on the base of mikdash at that point the kohen godal discovered safer torah this is relevant to us right and it had been concealed and they concealed it for an important uh, reason again because they didn't want already Nebuchadnezzar, and, and things were getting a little bit Dicey, and they needed to hide it from, right, the invading forces. Um, now, you have a Sefer Torah in your possession. It's written by Moshe Rabbeinu, an unbelievable thing. It usually was in the Kodesh Kodashim, but so they, they, they found it, they rolled it. It normally used to be like they would roll it and Chaim Schechter would have it fully ro- rolled all the way to the beginning. However, when they found it, it was rolled to an ominous Pasuk, the Pasuk that is about to be quoted now. So, Yeshiyahu Gnazo, he hid it. Now, Kaiman Sharash HaKasif, what did he see? What, what inspired him to hide it? He opened up the Sefer Torah. And, uh-oh, the following ominous pasuk. Okay, so that is in Devarim. It's usually all the way in the beginning. It was rolled always to Bracious Barah. Here is he finds it in Devarim. Not only in Devarim, but an ominous pasuk that says that this Sefer Torah is going to be taken, right, that Hashem is going to lead you and everyone back to uh, a nation. It's presumed to be Bavel, a nation that you never knew before. Meaning everything is going to be carried off. So now that is a very ominous um Right, uh portent of the future that we're going to go to Gallas for a long time and so we really need to um we really need to make sure that these that these uh that the Sefer Torah does not get carried with it. So because your Yosha was very concerned about that, Ahmad says the Gemara, He rose up and he hid the Sefer Torah. Hadu dichiv, that's what it means when it doesn't possibly sort of the, the yosha said to to teach all of the people who were there, Tnuis or Nakodosh Babisa Shaban Sloman based Ben David Melhisrael, Inlachem Khaif. He says, "Put it in the base of mikdash that King Shlomo brought, because you will not. Ainachem masabek means you will not have the task of carrying it on your shoulders to go. In other words, we better hide this because we do not want to carry the Sefer Torah with us to Bavel, because we bring the Sefer Torah, the Aron, as it were, to Bavel and it's never going to come back. So we have to make sure that the kedusha and the Aron stays in the base of mikdash, and we hide it, and it will be there waiting for us when we return." Ezra Hashem. Okay, so that, to that, the Gemara explains. And this is not what the Gemara explains ex- explicitly. He said to them, what do you mean with this Pasuk? He meant, If this urn goes with you to Babel, you'll never bring it back. Now serve your God and your people. So he threw in a big cure. This was, uh, King Oshias. Um, that was his big, uh, thing. Yoshiau. King Yoshea, his big thing was Kiruv. Again, everybody was Odevo to Zara. He tried very hard to bring them back. I've heard some shirim from Rabbi David Katz about this. It's incredible, an incredible time period in history. Okay. So now we're at the two dots, 14 lines down. We're going to talk for a while about the Sheman Mishra, and then we'll bring it back to the Aron and its dimensions again. So it says the Gemara. Pitum Shemina Mishra. Let's talk about the formula and the recipe. It says, So, you know, we have P'sukim, right? Let's say, you should take, that explains the, uh, in, in the Torah, in Shemos, it tells you the recipe. Okay. So it says, uh, 500, I mean, the, the pasuk says, uh, this is actually right in Right, all explaining to you. So it says in the Gemara, So that's the first pasuk, and then as we just quoted in of olive oil, that's the 12 Lugan of olive oil. Okay, so you have all of these portions, but these olive oil, shabosholkin SA parin. What was the point of the olive oil in the recipe of the Sherman mishcha? You used to boil roots of the spices that are listed in the, in the previous pasuk, and you should take right. The kinamon is the one that's that's most familiar looking. But may you, you have four spices. You um, you boiled them in oil, sort of like sizzled them in oil, and and that is uh, that is the very mayor. No, the, in other words, boiling in oil is called frying. This, these, these spices were first boiled in actual water. And then, and then you pour the oil on top of them. And when the oil, after you boil the spices, then you pour the oil on the spices. And then, once the oil, right, because the idea is to add fragrance to the oil. Okay? The Mishra was like the best perfume ever. So you had to somehow get the spices into the into the oil. So that's why Rabbi Meir thinks that it was all boiled together. Rabbi Yuta says, no, this is a process. This is how you make perfume. What you do is you first boil the spices in water. Then you pour the, um, the uh, oil onto that. And then the oil, once it absorbs the spices, then you remove the oil from it. That's what the perfumers do. Ah, so he says, you know, like, look at how um, perfumer, perfume is made, and you'll know that that's exactly what was going on, and that's how they made the Shemem Mishcha. It look at the rest of the Pasuk. The Pasuk, in fact, tells you that you should do it the way, right, the perfumers do, right, because the Psukim, the, the subsequent Psukim explained it exactly. The next Pasuk says, masey It's the Maiseh, right? This is all in Shemos Lamed. For if you look through Chav Gimel, through Chavay, you'll see that describes in the Torah. Um, how they made this perfume, this Shemana Mishra. So when it says Ma'isir Rokeach, it's telling you, do it the way the perfumers do it. And that, it is in fact, as a view to how the perfumers are doing it. Um, right? Like Dr. Kelman in Shomer was, was talking about the Korban Pesach. That's the most delicious way to make any meat, is to take that specific zachar, that, that specific zone, and at that specific temperature, you gotta do it dry, it's gotta be less than a year. That's the most delicious meat there is, and he goes into the whole cooking process. Similarly here, too. When you're making this ketor, when you're making this Shemana Mishra, that's the best way to make perfume. It says Ma'isir and thus, that's how you do it fine. So now another another bris about this. Tanya, Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Eli, Shem and Mishchah Shasam Mosheh Midbar, Maisa Nisim Nasa mitchilah sof That really the whole Shem and when you you know you could follow the recipe and you could say that it's uh, Maisa rokeach, but really it was a miraculous recipe uh, that you can't explain because so many aspects of it would not happen in nature. It was a nice from beginning to end the way this was made. How so? So first of all, Shemitchilah loyobayla shnei mazar. Look, you look at the pesukim. He says you have twelve volume in volume of oil. Shnei Ma, says Shemin and Zayin. A hin, a hin is twelve lug. To and now if all you did was smear the roots with this olive oil it still wouldn't be enough olive oil but that's not all you did alahaskan vakama right shurah right if you're going to hold like rabbi mayer for example, that you boiled it. So now all of the fire is going to absorb the oil, right? And then you have the spices, they also absorb oil. The hayur and the pots still absorb some oil. And yet, you still have enough leftover oil um, that you can, what? You could use oil, this general in the Mishcha to anoint all of the vessels and everything. and All of these things, uh, there's enough oil to smear on all of them. This is like a Neis Hanukkah. Just preceding the Neis Hanukkah was this idea of the oil lasting enough to, to anoint everything. So this is so Chanukah was not the first time that we had oil that lasted much more than we ever thought it would, right? The nes that was involved in all of these things from a kashbaru. So look at how much oil there is. The twelve, the, the, the hin, the twelve lug isn't enough to do any of this, and yet somehow there was enough for all of it, right? So just in the just in the uh, processing of the isharon mishcha, you would lose a lot of oil, and here. After the processing, you still have enough to shmear everything and everyone with it, right? All the kohen gadol and there, all the vanav and all the kalim. Okay, when men and nishkuk kohanim gadolim melachim, and you still had this jug of oil left over, and then as each subsequent kohen gadol and melech would be anointed, you would still have enough oil. So obviously, this is a magical jug of oil that just was like a bottomless uh, uh, magical pit that never ran out. Okay, okay. So now we mentioned at the very end of this issue here the difference between kohanim gadolim and melachim. So here's where we get into an issue of: Did they all, in fact, have to be anointed? Do you have to anoint every kohen gadol? Do you have to anoint every melech? So we know that melech could be passed av leben. Right, kohen gadol, each one had to be vetted. Right, that was not passed on from uh, father to son, um, uh, passed, you know, passed Aaron and his sons. But the uh, but the actual malchus is that something that's passed on father to son, and is this very typical in the umos haolam, or is that something that is like a kohen gadol has to be anointed to each one? So the Gemara addresses that. The Gemara says, that the first king, like in a in a line of Av labain, has to first get anointed. And melech ben ain't so the son does not. That's something that's passed from father to son. My time. What's the reason? Because the pasuk says, Kum When we found David Malik, right? When Shmuel and said this, this guy, this little guy over here with the red head that you thought was a nothing. Uh, that's going to be our king. David Melech, as you recall, was, right, was, was not the one that was anticipated to be the most successful in his family at the time. He said, no, that's the one. Says the Gemara, when he says, Kizehu, he meant only this first one is going to need Meshicha and his sons subsequently do not need. That anointing of David Melech applies to all of the Davidic kings. So the question is, is that only to the Davidic kings or to any other king uh, of and in Kalisrael? It's a big hawk. But anyway, it's a big question. But be that as it may, with regards to king, you do not have to. Once you anoint the Davidic king, at least you don't have to anoint the sons beneath him. Mm-hmm. As they right as they assume the throne. But, but when it comes to coin Godol, so even if you had ten generations or beyond of Av Lebein Coin Godol, each one would require Meshika, as we discussed. Okay, so now. Let's go back to what we were talking about before. Uh, with regards to the, to the uh Shemina Mishcha, right, all of it will still remain Lasid Lava. As we said, that's one of the things that's left in that amazing collection of Kalin. Because it says, because that's what it means when the pasuk says, the pasuk literally says that it'll be there for Doros. So we can expect when we find gold right, when we finally unearth this uh, amazing uh, hidden ark, so we will find all these amazing caleb in it and in there, the Shem and among them. Amazing. Okay. So now, with Mashik, with regards to the of the king this says the Gemara, um, and by the way, maybe I'll forward to you what Simon Wolf wrote, what this has to do with the vidic Kings versus not. I mean, this gets very, very involved. Like I said, we shouldn't talk about the, the status of the Davidic line relative to other lines. But here we say the following. And and, and so now when we're talking about, um, as we mentioned earlier, when we talk about halachos of kings, right? the a lot of that have to do with, with kings. And so we talk about halachos. And one of them is that when you do the meshicha of a king, it has to be near a spring. Because the Pasuk says with regards to Davide Melech, when he uh, was commanded to um, anoint Shlomo HaMelech. Now that's interesting, right? Because we said that once David and Melech was... was um was anointed, right? That Shlomo did not have to be anointed. So we see this is gets a little bit uh, uh, confusing, but we will see that perhaps even though he didn't have to anoint him, they did it sort of like as a minhag, anyways, right? But, which makes sense, right? It's a ceremony when you're Mamlech King, certainly. So that would make sense. That would be part of that ceremony. Be that as, but it was not a chiyuf, so to speak. So be that as it may, when Shlomo was anointed, he mounted him on a mule. Right, he mounted him on a mule. They'll ride him at gichon to take my mule, the symbolic, bring him down to the river. And Umasha Sham Tokar, Nasan Nabi L'Helch is Ali Sra'l. And and Satarakar and Nasan Nabi burned down, he made him anointed him as a king. So the Gemara says, wait a minute, Ain Moshkh Melch ben Melek. So wait a minute, we we thought I thought that Ain Moshkin Melh bin it says the el Elmi Pnamokis. Well it's Kidai to uh, anoint the king, especially when you're talking about you have multiple sons, and as we know, there was no shortage of politics and controversy over who was gonna be the next king. So it makes sense to anoint a king if for no other reason than political reasons, right? To single out who the king is gonna be. Aha, so Mipnay Mah nimshlamo, but why was Shlomo um, anointed, right? In other words, because obviously there was a machlokas, uh, Adoniah challenged it, and Yoash, why then subsequently was Yoash anointed, and Yoachas, why was he anointed, and Yehu, Okay, so there was no shortage of politics, as we said, the entire time that Bnei Israel were in. Uh, Israel in Bayez Rishon, there was north, there was south, and even within each region, machlokas galore. And so every appointment was contested, every, everything was needed, uh, as much clarity as possible, but obviously politics uh snuck into it. Now, in the context of saying this, it says that Yohi Hohaz, um what had Yehoiakim, who was his brother, that was two years older. This becomes historically something that we need to work out. So let's just see. Hold on a minute here. What's this idea that Yehu was in fact anointed, right? We just went through a list of kings that were anointed. Says the Gemara, Didn't we say by David that Zetan Meshicha ve'imache turned turn Meshicha? So the Gemara says, again, why is the B'raises saying that Yehu was anointed? Didn't we just say that, uh, that if you're from the Davidic dynasty, then no further king past David needs Meshicha? Well, we just explained that we have uh, that we have this issue that was always because of Machlokas. I'm not sure why the Gemara would have to ask that. But be that as it may, we have another problem. The other problem is there's a historical, uh, glitch here. Because we said, as follows. Says the Gemara, was, was, was he in fact two years older? Says the Gemara. Wasn't it in fact Yoshio himself that hid, we just said, Yoshio hid the anointing oil when he was the king? Before his son Yeho'achaz Yeho, was anointed, so how could it be in this statement that Yeho'achaz was in fact anointed if the shemen hamishcha was already um, right uh, was already hidden by his father Yeshua? That's another historical glitch that we have to work out to which the Gemara resolves as follows right again this was ceremonial and it was not a chiyuv and therefore once it's not a chiyuv you don't have to follow the exact recipe of Moshe Rabbeinu you don't have to use that Shem and Mishcha that Moshe Rabbeinu used to anoint all the kalim and all the kings to follow and, and, the, and the original coin bottles. rather they used something that was just basically balsam basically a, a far simon which was a perfumed oil and that's what they used in that particular case because it was ceremonial anyways this was not a mitzvah of mishcha. this was just sort of like a ceremonial thing okay Fine. So that is one halakha with regards to the Other halachas with regards to Malachim says the Gemara ain't Mosh and Malachim alamin a that you have to use a horn of oil. So however, Shaol V Yehun Apach. When you have Shaol and Yehu, they use the flask. So says the Gemar, Haisemal Hussa and Hussa Mahus Overis. So they again so, this is where he gets to some of the sources of the Machlokas about this Davidic dynasty, right? Shaul was not from the Davidic line. So, did he even need to have the Meshika? That's, that's a whole question. So, but it would certainly explain why he didn't have to have all the halachas of being anointed from a Karen. However, so anyways, the Machlokas that was Overas, then there's a whole discussion about the names of the kings being very descriptive of their uh, roles. So, for example, Shaul comes from the word borrowed. He had borrowed the Melucha temporarily, whereas Davrin Shlomo, um, Shlomo was Shalim, and that Machus was a Machus Kayamis, and therefore they had the more uh, right, classic horn uh, of oil, Mashicha, fine. More halachas about Mashicha, ain't Mashri Kohanim Lachib. We don't anoint kings who happen to also be Kohanim. They're not supposed to be Kohanim Lilavim. They're supposed to be from Shevet Yudah. It's supposed to be Davrin Meluch. So, we don't anoint those kings. a Rabbi Yudah, an Tun Dinar, Durai, an Tun Okay, the the Tzidrai said, lo Again, that the shevet here is referring to the scepter, right, the uh, uh, of the king, and it says that should not leave Yehuda. The king should be Yehuda. The man What's written right after it? Lo yek Yeah, you have to look at the pasuk. The pasuk says when it talks about in the Torah in the Torah, about the different halachas of the it says That's the pasuk. And the next pasuk is lo Levi Israel. Uh, so that is not exactly necessarily referring to the kings, but it is a juxtaposition of Tukim that implies that the kingship should never go to the Kohanim and the Levim. Okay, now before we talked about Yochacha's succeeding Yishayahu as king. So the pasuk said that the sons of Yishayahu, the first one was Yochanan, then Yochim, and then Tikiyo, and then the fourth Shalom. So we're going to talk about whether that was historically correct that order of sons. So I'm going to be Yochanan. Who Yochanan? Who Yochahaz? That like Yochanan in fact was Yo-hahaz. The Gemara asks, the Yochanan." Ah, but it says that the abchor was Yochanan, and then later it mentions Yochahaz. So what does that mean? So the Gemara says, no, that he, that Yochanan slash Yoachas was the first Melech, but really he was the same one. So I'm Rabbi Yochanan. Interestingly, again, it's Rabbi Yochanan saying this. Who Shalom? Who Sitkio? That at the end of that pasuk, Sitkio and Shalom are the same person. I back, save we have a pasuk that says four names: Yochanan, Yoachas, Sitkio, and Shalom. Sounds like there's four sons. Why are we saying that one? That that the two names are for one of them? So the Gemara says, The art scroll explains the history here. It's a fascinating history. These were the last. These four sons, right? Of Yeshua, uh, as we said, this is right before the Gullus Bavel. This is right before the first, the Basimiket was destroyed. So those kings were the last of the Davidic dynasty. And so, uh, just going through the, the again, a, a quick history because this is very relevant to what we're talking about. After 16 Yeshua, Yahshaz was imprisoned by Paro, who installed the oldest brother, Yo And then Yo Yachim reigned for 11 years, and then he was followed by Yechaniah, who some call Yoh And after him, he was only three months on the throne, and then Nebuchadnezzar exiled him to Bavel, right? And then he brought in Sidiyo, so it really was Nebuchadnezzar, right? Who who coronated right Tzit-Kiyo. Now this this in the eleventh year was when you add the, the rest of the galus. Sidiyo was the king where all of the uh, all of the, 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 the real first galus took place. Says the Gemara, Sidiyo, why was he called Sidiyo? Right, that's where the Midas Adin took place uh the first the first ball shalom and then why would he be called shalom if he in fact is the same person it should be yom Shalom, shalom malchus, Beis, david. Because shalom not like as in peace or as in shlemus but as in what the end the end of malchus david took place at that time in his life uh, in the reign of tzitkiyahu now 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 that we mentioned those names so he said lo Shava vashmei mm-hmm. vlo tzitkiyahu matanya that his real name his given name was matanya but they either called him tzitkiyahu or shalom that's what it means when it says put matanya in his place Right, but and it was in fact Nebuchadnezzar who changed his name to Tzikiyo to show that tzidikah Unbelievable. Two dots, sixty lines up. Uh, six lines up, rather. Two dots at the bottom of that aleph. Now we're going to talk about. We're going to spend uh, basically the rest of the time now talking about the dimensions of the aron. We have uh, only a few minutes left, but this already goes a little bit fast. Hopefully, so. What does this mean? shall him? So we already discussed this at the beginning of Erevin, that you can have there's different types of amas you can have, right? either made out of six, thachim, six and a half, or five, right? It wasn't as regulated. When we were talking about it in Erevin, we're talking about the tafak itself. How many fingers is it? Fat fingers, skinny fingers. So here we're talking about the Amma also had this Shaila. So Rabbi Yochanan holds that it's the middle ground, it's the Shish Shish T that we're talking about when you made the dimensions of the Aaron Man. Tana shal Shishot Fachim. Who is the Tan that holds that it was made of Shish Thachim? he that's Ruby Mayor. That's non, because we know him remember mayor So like we said, could be five, could be six. Could be be six and a half. So here we're talking about the bainus is the six, and Rabbi Yehuda Amr almost a shisha and shall kalim chamisha. Rabbi Yehuda said that the actual Aaron was six, kalim was five tvachim amas. That's also according to the Pinyah Ramiya. Do Amr ba'amas shishut tefachim I'll say who said that the Aaron was made with amas tefachim or kalim chamisha tefachim. So we know if you hold that the Aaron is made of six tefachim, then the length of the Aaron had to be fifteen, right? Because why? The chesiv amatay v'chetzi arko. Right? The pasuk says straight up that the length of it is, uh, is is two and a half amas. So if it's six times two and a half, it's fifteen. Amta shisha amta shisha, polgas, amta lasa. The Gemara takes you through the math. You come out with fifteen, right? Six plus six plus three is in fact fifteen. So Rabbi explains. So how do you fit the, four, the, the all the sets of Lukos? So assuming, right, that there was one aron and that you, then you needed to have both sets of Lukos, the broken in the hole, and the whole—and the Torah scroll of Moshe Rabbeinu. So four tablets. So we so we say straight up in the pasuk that the Shiva luchos were also in the aron. So now the Gemara discusses how you take the dimensions of the Lukos, How do they fit into the aron? Well. That we know the dimensions of the Luchos. That was also, uh, mentioned. So they were six tvachim long. six by three. Okay. Vetna, vetain rachba shalosha, or Put the width, so lay them down lengthwise, right? Nishta Yasham tvachim, and you have three tvachim left, right? Because you simply have four sets and you put them down where, where really the, the width, which is three tvachim, you line it up along, right? The Aaron itself was nine by fifteen. And if you have nine by fifteen and you lay them down, um, so that so the the three by six um luchos, so then you'll see that you'll have two tefachim left at the end. Right, because you have two tefachim left at the end, but that's also because chazit tefach l'kol because the walls of the arn actually have a thickness of chazit And that fits nice because you have two tefachim left over to put in the scroll at the very end, so it fits very nice. Um So then now the width. So right, because we said the same. Right, so we said it's two and a half long, which is fifteen, and it's one and a half wide, which is nine. Because so right? if you do the six. Uh, amas, so you have six plus three is nine. And again, we have the four And we said the two of them were broken, and two of them were right the, the whole. So means that each one of them was six long. As we already said, put the six length of the luchos parallel to the nine tefach width of the Aaron the So there you have three tefachim left over. So so when you do the math, you end up with, um, basically, and you put them all up next to each other, what you'll end up with is sort of like a rim, like a chest he- shaped rim of tutkakim all around. And the reason you, that is useful is because it says, l'shilut makom, in other words, if you only had, right, if they were all up, if, if the Luchos themselves, right, they were six T'vachim uh, long. If they filled up the entire width of the Aron, you'd have no way to navigate the Torah scroll in there. By the fact that you have two T'vachim all around, you can actually get the Torah scroll that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote. You can navigate it into its spot, into its two T'vachim spot. So now we're 11 lines down at Zayin and base. The rest of the Yomad, all the way down to Rebez, discusses the dimensions of the Aron. It goes very quickly because it takes the same Cheshbon and applies it to different dimensions. And Bezrat Hashem will go over that tomorrow.